This is The Guardian. Today, in big cities and smaller towns, the Ukrainians who are carrying on with their daily lives, even as their home has been turned into a war zone. In a theatre in Mariupol, a city in South Ukraine, about a thousand people were sheltering for their lives on Wednesday when the bombs fell. Russian bombs that destroyed the city's swimming pool too, that killed nobody knows yet exactly how many people. But there were families there. There were children. Hundreds of people were hiding there from shelling. The building is destroyed. It is heartbreaking what Russia is doing to our people. Граждане России, чем ваша блокада Мариуполя отличается от блокады Ленинграда в годы Второй мировой войны? Throughout Ukraine, those who've remained and survived the first few weeks of war are trying to carry on living as best they can through almost constant air raid sirens and a feeling of danger. And for an episode last week, I spoke to a woman called Katya. She's one of the millions of Ukrainians who fled their country. She told me she'd left her mum, Larissa, behind, but that she hoped to be back in Ukraine in time to celebrate her mum's birthday. Katia's in the UK now, but Larissa is still in Ukraine. I called her earlier this week. Larissa, your daughter Katia said that it was your birthday on the 15th of March. So firstly, happy birthday. And um, can I ask, how did you spend the day? Well, thank you. Katia sent me a bunch of uh, pink tulips. It was such an unexpected surprise. I like flowers in general, uh, and especially seasonal flowers, and just in such a gloomy situation that is going on right now, to get such a sunny present, it was really very touching. I just I simply started crying. I enjoyed it a lot. Larissa lives in northern Ukraine, and for her safety, we're not naming the city she's in. And it's situated really in a very picturesque place with lots of historical buildings. No, it's rather cold here. It's frosty and windy, and we only have snowdrops. After three weeks of war, many of the people who live where Larissa does have escaped. It's quiet, but life goes on. And she's still working as a teacher, running science classes for her 15 and 16-year-old students. So all the schools in my city are closed now. Our Lyceum, there are possibilities to join online classes. And since Monday, we organise distant learning for our students. Lots of them joined. They are very happy to see their teachers, to have this feeling that life is going on. They are thankful, especially their parents as well. 
Across the country, Natalia Humunyuk has been recording how people in Ukraine are just carrying on and how that in itself is a form of resistance. If you speak a lot about the peoples in a lot of towns, for them, they do strongly feel that they defend the international order. That they defend the fact that in the 21st century, one country cannot invade another country. And if it's possible, we think that, you know, rules in this world do not work. They really feel strongly. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, how daily life in Ukraine has become an act of defiance. Larissa, it's incredible to me that you're still teaching at the moment. How have your students been affected by the war? Definitely, they all have different feelings. Some of them are more or less comfortable and they are more optimistic. Others have to hide most part of the time somewhere because we have uh, air alarms every other hour. Uh, but they do their best to try to join the community online. Yes. And you said that people have to find somewhere to hide. Are there shelters in the city that people are able to go to? Frankly speaking, there are very few real shelters. Mostly people use the cellars of the buildings, but people try to do what they can because lots of people are, are very frightened. I personally don't go there because I have a dog and uh, it's rather difficult uh, to go up and down stairs each time when there is air alarm with the dog. I think made rather a safe place uh, in my apartment <laughs> and stay there. And how are you coping? I try to feel optimistic and sound optimistic and support my friends, uh, though I have some of them who are really very depressed of such a situation. And I know lots of people, especially teachers who volunteer, uh, try to do their best to cook uh, meals for the soldiers, or just gather things, medicine, or just do anything they can. And I know that you have a neighbour that you've been particularly helping. Um, Katia told me a little bit about her, but um, could you tell me about your neighbour? <laughs> it's an interesting story. She will be 85 this September. Her husband, uh, was he was a military man and uh, under the Soviet Union. And when uh, those military men retired, they could choose any place where to live. And they liked my city very much and they moved here. But both of them are Russians. And uh, she has been living here for 30 years. And she has two sons. Both of them are military men. Uh, one is retired already. The other one teaches at the military academy in St. Petersburg. Mm. And each summer they used to come here with their children to have rest. And uh, when everything started, one day I wrote him that in my region there was bombing. The house very close to ours has been destroyed. And in my multi-storied building, all the windows um, in the hall were broken. 
So he wrote to me that our country is to be blamed because of 80 years of war in Donbass and Lugansk. He said that it's Ukraine's fault. Yes, it's Ukraine's fault and our government are Nazis and it's me who doesn't have relevant information. I say to him, guy, so I'm living here. I witness what's going on. It's me who is helping her all this time. I go to the store, I go to the pharmacy, I go to the bank. I support her any way I can. And her sons uh, just think that uh, everything's bad here. So I told him I am Nazi myself nowadays, probably. And she's 85 years old. What's her health like? After 2014, they never came to Ukraine. They don't help her financially. She leads a very modest way of life. She feels herself pretty happy staying here in Ukraine. The only thing is that she doesn't completely understand what's going on. It sounds like if you weren't there to help her day to day, she wouldn't be in a good position. Yeah, I visit her once or twice a day. She needs this. She needs the feeling that there's someone here. And this is also one of the reasons why I don't want to leave. Because if I leave, she will stay alone. And I feel sorry for such an old lady uh, being in such a situation. I admire you for doing that. Larissa... How would you describe the Ukrainian spirit? People are very hardworking. People are very hospitable. In general, it's a very proud nation with its history, with its dignity. And if you look back to the history of Ukraine, you'll see that we are constantly fighting enemies. We are constantly defending our land. Probably is geographically Ukraine is situated uh, on the crossroads uh, of other countries, of the uh, those uh, ways that lead eastern countries to west and western countries to east and Ukraine is in the middle of all those conflicts and this only makes uh, this nation stronger and uh, even in such a situation people try to joke Mm -hmm. and think of lots of jokes which reflect uh, the Ukrainian character and uh, the situation in general. When you look ahead to two weeks from now, two months from now, how do you imagine things are going to progress? Can you imagine what your life's going to be like? It's very difficult to prognose anything right now because the situation is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. But we believe in our military forces We trust our people, our president, and hope that this should finish. And uh, we hope that uh, international organizations, all other countries, which uh, are already doing their best, they will probably do more to help us, to help us to defend our independence. And talking about uh, the future two months, uh, I hope that uh, it will finish. If not completely, but uh, there should be some positive moments on this way to finishing all this. 
I believe that probably those Russian and Belarusian uh, military men, they, uh, they have something in their hearts because they were brought up by mothers. They can't be a beast, complete beast to do what uh, they are doing now. And some of them probably will stop. When you see Katya again... What would you like to do? Do you have like favorite things that you like doing together? I was waiting for her to come on the 15th so much for my birthday. And uh, it happened <laughs> that I don't know when I see her. <laughs> mm. But I hope <laughs> it will happen soon. We all believe in this. <laughs> I just want to hug and kiss her. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Just sit and even not talk, but just keep silence together, but just being together. I hope it can happen as soon as possible. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad I've been able to speak to you. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I hope that this interview will show other people that we are ordinary people, very peaceful. We don't uh, want this war. We want peace. We want to have our closest people near us and uh, just simply ask others to support us in this war and help to stop this as soon as possible. After I spoke to Larissa, I called Natalia Humunyuk, the reporter who's been writing so movingly about the war for The Guardian's opinion pages. I knew she'd been travelling across Ukraine, speaking to all sorts of people who, like Larissa, had been trying to carry on with their lives as bombs fell. Natalia, where are you right now? I'm at home in my place in Kiev. How does Kiev feel at the moment? It's a big town and we have still millions here. We do have uh, air raids from time to time, the sirens. How close have the attacks come to your home? It's still about the outskirts of the city. Uh, but... But again, you know, like we've seen what happened to uh, Kharkiv, to the, where they just all of a sudden put a number of the airstrikes on the very, on the downtown. Uh, you know, so I've been there, I've seen the boutiques destroyed, the restaurants, the cafes, and just like the beautiful buildings in the old street, which doesn't make sense, you know, from the military point of view. And you've been traveling around the country to get a sense of what the situation is like. You said um, recently in an article that you wrote, we are all people of war now. What did you mean by that? Though I felt like everybody is a person of war, you know, hearing a siren is one thing. Seeing the building collapsed, it's a totally different thing. After that, you just know that 
you know, like you value the peace more, you value the human life more, things becoming, you know, they, they're becoming different. Something you thought is impossible becomes possible. So that's how it is. But another uh, level of that is, you know, first days, there was this incredible resilience and support uh, that Ukraine is fighting back. It's still there. Now, every day when I look at my Facebook feed, I see a person posting a photo of somebody who has died. A relative, a soldier, a civilian, or a friend. It could be somebody whom I know myself, and that's very different. It's more and more you know somebody who knows somebody who has lost somebody. And the scale of that, the fact that everybody knows somebody who's died, it's difficult to fathom how people carry on doing their jobs. You know, I'm thinking of people who work in hospitals how are the emergency services and other public services coping at the moment? That's, I should also say that I'm so positively surprised. You know, for a while, Ukraine, especially by Russian propaganda, was described as this failed state, which is not really functioning. You know, Ukraine is not the richest country. It's post-authoritarian, it's, you know, we, we were used to speak about the corruption here, uh, but I'm really amazed how quickly and how everybody does his best. You know, the Ukrainian railway, it's just evacuating people. It's for free. It's those people who are the drivers. They are everywhere. I've written just today that 17 rescue workers has already died uh, because, the, you know, during the shellings and everything, those who saving lives, the hospitals are working, the doctors are there. I see that even in the most destroyed town, they, you know, like they're fixing gas, they under the shelling, go and fixing water. It's three weeks of this attack, of this invasion. Mobile services are working. Uh, electricity is working, water supply. And it's not because it's not damaged. It's because they're really trying to do something. Uh, every company, business company, my bank, uh, you know, sends me some clarification how I should deal with this or that. This organization, like the tax police explaining you how you should deal with your taxes, you know, during this crisis. So you really feel some kind of cared by, the, by, by everybody. But the story I want to tell, I've just been to the town where earlier there was neither foreign nor Ukrainian journalist. It's a town of Okhtyrka, you know, a small town, 50,000 people living there. It's close to the Russian border. It's very, it's not important town at all, but it's an important railroad junction. So if that town has been overtaken, there could be open road for, for capturing the bigger cities in Ukraine. We've been there with this local mayor. And can you imagine, he was just walking there and showing me this, like, this is destroyed, this is destroyed, this is destroyed. And what is also was striking for me that he's by that day, he has two weddings. He has a number of the uh, funerals at that day he was in. And he tries to deal with this water supply and electricity. By his profession, he is the surgeon. And mm -hmm. he go on treating people. 
there are really a lot of, he, he doesn't want to tell how many people died in this town. It's quite a lot because at every place we went, I tried to understand like how much people died here. He said like five, six, three, you know, it's, it's a lot. And to be honest, what I thought that like, what should be in his mind? He was elected a year and a half ago to run this provincial town who nobody cares to do totally different job. Yeah. And now he's walking around this war crimes places uh, you know, trying to make it livable for the rest of 20,000 people living there. The job he thought he was going to be doing to be this small town mayor is suddenly something completely different now that Ukraine is in a state of war. And it sounds like so many people you've spoken to, hospital workers, railway workers, journalists like yourself, are having similarly surreal experiences. You know, like we haven't seen the war in our lifetime, in our houses. You've, we've seen that in the cinema. And for me, it's so strange because, you know, we discuss it with friends. We see all these memes. Uh, you know, I've seen, I, I, I was recording the uh, the guy who has the badge with Baby Yoda uh, mm. on his uniform. And, you know, like he has this feeling that like we're fighting an empire and we had these jokes that like let the force be with us. And later a friend of mine was speaking that he has this feeling of the, you know, Lord of the Rings. Uh, and it's very strange we talk this way, but it's really like there because if you you kind of you're feeling that like oh hobbits came to support us or elves are coming you know like with every mm-hmm. international support it's feeling like these people with us and those people cannot help us but they sent one guy to help us so you have this this feeling it's it's very strange you know the president has this reference starting each address like for the free people of the free country which to be honest sounds like really if you if we talk about that half a year ago it would be so strange because it's so kind of so high talk to free people of the free country but it feels like that coming up how war is changing the way normal ukrainians and russians feel about each other Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Natalia, I've been speaking to a woman called Larissa, who lives in northern Ukraine, and she was telling me about how she's taking care of her neighbour, who's Russian. This is a woman whose sons had careers in the Russian military, sons who support this war. 
It's a confusing situation because Russia and Ukraine have, of course, always been so close, so intertwined. When you look beyond this conflict, if you can imagine that, do you worry at all about the animosity that it's going to have caused between regular Ukrainians and Russians? Of course. I should say I regret it, but unfortunately I should say it's inevitable. It's inevitable in every wars. What is important and interesting for me to mention that the President Zelensky, till now, after the three weeks of war, in all his addresses, he still tries to, you know, uh, speak about the Russians separately, like to, you know, to divide Russian government and the Russian citizens. Yeah. Even when he appeals to the soldiers, he doesn't speak really about hatred. He tries to build his messages into like, let's take care about each other. Uh, I, I appreciate that a lot. I think it's also very important uh, from the, you know, moving this uh, energy, this shock to this, you know, determination to defend the land, to care about each other. Uh, I, I should give a credit, really, honestly. It could be very different. But we understand it doesn't work that way for a lot of people. And I think it's not really about, you know, like hatred, but a real disappointment. But in media, by the government, by the president, there is no cultivation of this kind of negative feeling. It's still more about like, let's take care about us. Let's promote those goods in people, what Ukrainians do. Natalia, finally... How do you plan to keep reporting what you see and what you hear through this conflict? I think for us, it's very important to document the crimes which had been committed, to get out to the different towns, you know, which hadn't been covered and which stories hadn't been told. It's so big. It's 40 million country and everybody to some extent is affected. There is no capacity for us to tell this story. It's difficult logistically. So every reporting trip is really logistical nightmare. You should be before curfew. You need to stay somewhere. The hotels are not working. Your mind is focused on these small things. I think it helps us because we fully do not understand how tragic it's what's going on and how badly damaged the country is and the scale of what has happened. I feel that people are really thinking that this war is so useless. It's so much about nothing, so much about with no reason. That's why we understand that the West supports Ukraine. They send the weapon, but they do not participate. But it's our role to just say it's impossible. It shouldn't be the case when one country can bombard another country. And we accept it because if so, why do we need all these international organizations? And that's what common people tells to me. They do feel that it's really for the for the rules of this world, for humanity, for democracy, for their right to be whom they are, for not having something, because what Russia does for a lot of people just looks medieval. And they don't think we live in the medieval times when Kingdom A overtakes Kingdom B, and that's okay. Natalia, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, listening to me and telling this story. That was Natalia Humunyuk. You can read her pieces, and I recommend that you do, at 
theguardian.com. And we want to hear from you. What other podcasts are you listening to? What do you like about The Guardian's podcasts at the moment? And what could we be doing better? Go to www.guardiansurveys.com forward slash podcast and fill in the survey there, please. It will really help us shape what we make next. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams. And thanks also to Lucy Hoff. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And our executive producers are Mithili Rao and Phil Maynard. I hope you have a lovely weekend. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.